0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash FilmDaily.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, October 5th, 2022. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about and or episode five, The Axe Forgets. This is Slash Film Editorial Director, Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Star Wars expert, Brian Young.
2: Uh, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Okay, guys, uh, before we get into this week's episode, we have a bunch of feedback. Uh, we're actually reading feedback from from the last two episodes because uh, I'm not sure if everybody out there realizes this, but we recorded the last episode uh, basically off screeners that we got from the first episode, and, and we hadn't gotten any emails at that point. So we, we got some emails from, from both of our last two episodes to go through here. Uh, first, Bob from Nashville writes in, while discussing Andor Episode 4, you mentioned Dedra's name sounded like Debra but Star Wars up. Well, it turns out Dedra is actually an Irish name in a variation on Deirdre and it means brokenhearted. Not sure that much care was given into the character names in these shows, but if so, I wonder if her name could be a waypoint to her character's arc. Right, what do you what do you think? You usually read into some some of the stuff a little bit more than than me. Like do you think they actually looked up what
2: her name like do you think there was a consideration? I mean, Tony Gilroy is that careful of a writer, generally. Um and to me, I mean, like, I kind of picked up like when you said Deborah, and I my, my head went straight to Deirdre, which just sort of has this proper British imperial sort of name, so I thought that's where it was coming from. But I could very easily see her. Dedra broken hearted through the end of the uh, through the end of the season. <laughs> I mean, she's
1: not Dedra. Uh, she, she won everything, right? Because we know how things end up. So, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Rick writes in with a an interesting fan theory here. I'm gonna, Brad. I'm wondering if you can answer this fan theory. He Rick wonders. Could BT B2EMO end up becoming K2SO? Some of his lines feel simil- uh, similar.
3: Mm, I mean, I suppose it's like th- that there's always a possibility, but I feel like that would be strange.
2: Yeah. So there, there's 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 two things that can happen. One. K2SO does show up as an Imperial security droid in a comic book that actually illustrates Cassian getting K2. But to the point, there is a possibility that he could use some of B2 Emo's programming when he overrides K2, but I don't see that necessarily happening. He says that in Rogue One very specifically that he says whatever comes into his circuits as a byproduct of the cracking of his code hmm yeah no i i I think you've answered that
1: one well enough um and uh mark from malta writes in uh quote it's strange that the dead bodies and andor's childhood flashback are wearing clothing bearing the insignia of the separatists uh you guys incorrectly identified this as the symbol which is associated with the think tank known as the tarkin initiative i've seen theories that These were actually Republic troops in disguise. However, I find it hard to believe that Republic troops would open fire on children in cold blood. My theory is that the accident actually happened pre-formation of the Empire itself. And what we witnessed was a battle between the Republic and the Separatists. However, it's called an Imperial mining disaster because to many, there was no difference between the Republic or in the Empire.
2: So... I've been thinking a lot about this one, actually, because as I've watched more and read more about it, yeah, like those were separatist uh, forces and the Republic is in there. And if you look at Cassian's timeline, um, you know, this time of his life would be prior to the conclusion of the Clone Wars. But if you if you track uh, through James Luceno's canon books, Tarkin and uh, Catalyst, Construction of the Death Star and all of the materials that they needed for it proceeded prior to the end of the Clone Wars, right? I think people forget that uh, Dooku brings the plans to Sidious at the end of Attack of the Clones, and that's really when work begins on the Death Star in earnest. And so... Republic forces tasked by Palpatine to be as ruthless as possible to guard this this utmost military secret that could win the war against the separatists makes a lot of sense in how ruthless that they would be in defending it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, well, I don't know. Like
1: I, I, I'm wondering how much do you even think they thought about that? I mean, obviously, like, you know, this was run by Pablo and the whole the whole crew there
2: did you listen to that that podcast episode of tony gilroy talking about somebody's like well obviously we know about the gorman massacre and mon mothma and that's gonna happen soon he's like no that happens in 2 bby like and he's just he's very on top of the timeline um so i think tony gilroy does know when the timeline is and i think i don't think pablo is gonna let anything that foolish slip Another thing
1: so someone wanted us to talk about is we forgot to acknowledge in the first three episodes of Andor, in one of those episodes, a swear became canon in the Star Wars universe, and we're talking about the S-word. Uh, Brian, has, has shit ever been
2: said in the Star Wars universe before? No, the closest we've gotten is the Hattie's poodoo. Um, <laughs> but... And and that's translated in the subtitles as fodder, actually. But we all know what it really means. Um, but no, this is the first time it's been uttered in basic. Um, and I don't think we remarked on it because I didn't think any of us found it that remarkable.
1: Yeah, it, it didn't even occur to me, actually, at the time. It was only it, I, it yeah. felt
2: very natural in the moment for the characters in the situation.
1: Yeah. Um, OK, uh, one other thing. Last week's episode, episode four, we mentioned that while we were recording that podcast that we were working off a screener that had our name in large letters across the screen, and I I remember asking if if there was any uh, interesting... Easter eggs in the background of Luthen's antique shop. And we, we couldn't come up with anything. And that's honestly because, like, our copy of the screener is re- really hard to see anything uh, in the background. We usually, when we record these podcasts, are working off the like copy that you actually see because we, we record this the day of release, but we had to record that early because I was in, away in Florida. Uh this this basically just me saying uh you know that's our excuse for not noticing things. But there were were a bunch of cool stuff in the background. Right?
3: Yeah, there were some some cool trinkets uh that the fans would likely recognize.
1: Brad, do you want to point out any of them?
3: Sure. Um, there was um, some Sith Stalker armor uh, that Galen Merrick once wore uh, as Starkiller in Star Wars The Force Unleashed, which is uh, a video game that Star Wars fans very much enjoyed uh, back in the the before times before Star Wars Expanded Universe became Legends.
1: Um, People were freaking out about that online.
3: Yeah, that was that was pretty cool. This, this like this scene really served as an opportunity to kind of like uh, bring in some cool things from Legends, but also like uh, kind of have some things in the background that also will probably be important uh, in the future and have been important in the past. For example, uh, Star Wars Rebels fans probably noticed uh, that there was um, a basically like um, uh, a, a piece that be- involves the the world between worlds, which was a big. Uh, plot point in in Star Wars Rebels Uh, you can see the pieces of of this in the background it's a like a stone tablet. basically (laughs) Brian can probably explain this a little bit better yeah
2: no so in um, the world between worlds we we see uh, a a a mural that allows Ezra entrance into that and to sort of tie in very specifically with Ahsoka's timeline but this happens later in the timeline and the mural is complete um, so I wonder if these are some of the archeological relics that led, um, the character that was, um, oh, what's his name? Why can't I come up with his name? Um, um, Alex what? from Clockwork Orange, Malcolm ah, McDowell, yeah. Malcolm McDowell's character is sort of this imperial ar- archeologist and rebels. And maybe these are pieces that lead him to that mural on Lothal, um, But I don't think these are the mural themselves. But it is it is a nice tie if if they're working with stuff going on with Ahsoka as well.
3: Uh, You can also see um, something that is uh, likely a nod to uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge a little bit because these items have also been prominent in the show, but you can uh, get them uh, very easily if you go to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And that's uh, Jedi and Sith holocrons, the Sith cube and the, the Jedi pyramid. And uh, in this episode, you can see uh, what appears to be an Indiana Jones uh, Easter egg. It, 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 uh, this is what people think anyway, and it, it does look this way. I, I do wonder if it is something else, but I feel like it matches right. It seems like you can see Indiana Jones whip frozen in carbonite. Uh, in a very small carbonite frame That's that you can see in the background. You can also see oh, it again. Oh,
1: that's what that is. I was looking at that, and I was yeah. wondering, what is that in carbonate? And it looks like, yeah, it, it's totally the whip.
3: Yeah, and you can you can see it a little bit better uh, in episode five. And funnily enough, you can also see another Indiana Jones Easter egg, Crystal Clear, but we'll get to that a little bit later.
1: Yeah, and there's also a, how do you say it, a that um yeah. Yeah, there was one of those in the background but not wooden. It looked like more metal. Like the one we saw in Rebels was more kind of like this ancient wooden I kind
2: think, of. I think they're they're each unique to the families that they come from. Um as each family sort of adds to it as their their family line increases as their their family tree changes. And the calicory that we've seen from the Sindula family that that Thrawn is so fascinated by is that that very wooden thing. But maybe this is from a more technolo- technologically uh, inclined family, or maybe a poorer family when you was using scraps of material or something like that. But but yeah, I thought that was a really interesting touch.
1: Yeah, I will say the Sith and Jedi holocrons seem a lot bigger than. Than the ones that are in Galaxy's Edge, or even like uh, bigger than what we've seen in Rebels, at least according to, you know, the size of hands and stuff. In that, but uh, uh, they they come in all uh, in all different sizes. Yeah, I was gonna gonna say that same thing, uh, but Brian, who is the better uh, antiquities dealer? Is it Luthen or is it Doc Ondar? I mean, I go into Doc Ondar's. I see way more historical artifacts that I recognize.
2: I'm just so. Saying. The thing is, though, is that uh, I think Luthen would be better because he's actually fighting for a better future, and Doc is just out for himself.
3: I mean, if you want to talk about their character, sure. <laughs> but if you, want, if you want to talk about their shop, Doc, Doc Ondar pretty much has like a leg yeah. up. He's, he's got a lot more things, a lot better things, and Luthen, Luthen's, he's tailoring to like the the higher, you know, class crowd. He's got all these like like, fancy things that cost way too much money. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's, that, that's true. Doc just has, like, some, like, remnants of the wars. Like, he just has, like, a bunch of helmets and blasters and stuff, and Luthen wouldn't even deal in that crap, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Uh, but, I, you know what? I'd rather have Doc's collection. I'm just saying. Uh, the other thing we didn't point out, and there's an article on Slash Film. There's actually an article on Slash Film for the Easter eggs. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, but Luthen's ship from last week's episode... A, actually borrows elements from uh, the f- early designs from the Millennium Falcon. So if you want to see that, I will link that in the show notes as well, something we didn't didn't get to point out. Okay, guys, let's get to episode five, The Axe Forgets. Um, I'll start first with my brief thoughts. I, You know, this episode is all about building tension. It's about, you know, us... Getting to know this group of people and uh, how they're not kind of, you know, falling into uh, the group is not uh, gelling together in the way that they need to be going into a heist like this. And uh, in that way, it's also a slower episode. Uh, It's episode two of a three episode arc. And I feel like we had the same thing happen with uh, episode two of the series. Where it it gets a little bit slower in that that middle episode, which makes me wish that like they just released uh, these the series in three episode chunks because of, it feels almost like a cohesive whole that needs to be experienced together. Uh, but maybe that's just a complaint on my part. Um, it's also, you know, what what do you guys think? I, I I hate to put this in the middle of my like brief thoughts, but. Do you think each of these three episodes are going to introduce us to a whole set of new characters? Or do you think, like, the characters we're meeting here are, like, because it really feels like it's doing a lot of heavy work in this episode of, like, us getting to know these characters. It's just like, you know, episode one and two of Andor did of us getting to know those characters. And it's every uh, every one of these three episodes are going to have to, like, introduce us to more characters because that might be a little tough going forward.
3: I feel like this is probably the cast of characters that we're going to spend the most time with this throughout this uh first season. I I feel like, you know, the the heist is going to be a big part of of what's coming up and they're obviously a key part of that. I'm sure they're not all going to make it. Um but I and I feel like, you know, we'll, we'll probably meet, you know, a few more key characters, but I feel like as far as the footage that we've seen from, you know, uh Andor trailers and things like that, there haven't really been any other uh key characters who other than the ones that we're meeting here. So I feel like we'll probably stick with these these guys for a while.
2: That's a good point. Um I think I think all of these storylines are actually crossing over in ways that that will be a little bit unexpected. With them putting the ISB uh influence directly on Ferrex in the town that Cassian was from, I think we'll probably see more of Marva and those characters with um Dedra investigating um the star path unit, she's going to be on their trail with Cassian dealing with these people. I think we're going to get them around with Mon Mothma and Luthen and the intrigue that's going on with them. I think the ISB is going to be after them as well. And I think ultimately the show is going to be like um, everybody just being on the run because the, the nascent rebellion is so difficult to defend its secrecy. Um, but I thought, I thought there were some really interesting clues to things that we might see in the future that we could talk about later. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, The only other things I wanted to say is I, I
1: Luthen's absence was kind of felt in this episode. I know he appears in one scene, but I don't know. I I, I really missed him not being a part, a bigger part of this episode. And I expect next week's episode six, things are going to come to a head with this this big heist and it's going to be like episode three did where it's going to like totally seem like everything in these, uh, you know, episode three and four was worth it or episode four and five w- was worth it because uh, it, it's going to be a crescendo of sorts. And I, I'm expecting that, but I will say that uh, this might be the weakest episode of the series so far, but th- that's just because it's more of a slower episode in my mind, but I'm, I'm still very much enjoying it.
2: Brian, what are your brief thoughts? So I kind of felt like this was the strongest so far. Like it's, ooh, I really feel like the writing was so sharp and it's the exact kind of writing. Like it felt like it went by too fast to me, honestly, because the writing was so good and there was so much to read into the dialogue and how good the dialogue was written. Well, um, it's,
1: it's all about character here. It's it's yeah, not really yeah. about plot developments.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I was I was all on board for that, so it didn't feel like we were losing anything or losing momentum because um, I was so fascinated by the characters, especially all of the sparring between Cassian and Skeen and um, Mon Mothma and her family and and those two stories like Dedra was fine but she only had like maybe two scenes and Luthen was fine in the episode he was in um but it was really to me about learning about the characters and understanding more about the plot of what's going on um for me this was the this was the death star briefing right for the trench run yeah. um and so you're right like it's the next part isn't going to matter if we don't have all the context of what's at stake for each of the characters and what the spatial geography of the places they're infiltrating are like. And we got all of that in this episode. So it just laid really great groundwork, but it laid that groundwork in an exciting way that felt like there were uh, increasing the stakes uh, felt like it was increasing the stakes and get helping us get to know all of the characters and their particular struggles. So I was just, I was all in. Brad, your brief thoughts on episode
1: five. Uh,
3: Yeah, I actually really like this episode uh, as well, even though it was slower. I think that there was a lot of great character development here and there's a lot of really meaningful conversations uh, and fantastic moments between these characters Uh, and some really good lines too. the writing in this episode was was particularly great. There's some moments that uh, reminded me and made me feel just as good um, about these scenes as I did of the the scene between Luthen and Cassian. Uh, from episode three when they have a conversation about you know how he stole the star path unit and uh, really getting his feelings about the the empire so yeah even even though there wasn't um, you know a ton of stuff happening here there's a lot of moving pieces that are setting up for you know what will likely be a a, you know a a big episode uh, next week I, I still found a lot to really like about this one
1: yeah I probably should have said that but yeah the the character writing in this is is great and you know, let's just jump into it and in the breakdown, because even this first scene with Cyril is so good with um, you know, not only is he defeated and living in his mother's apartment, but like she's there uh berating him in a way that is just so cleverly written. The dialogue here is just so good. And uh and he's also eating um some Star Wars cereal, some like it looks like a mix of like cocoa puffs and blue milk or something.
3: It was almost like, uh, yeah. Or it could be like, um, like some kind of like tricks swirl or something like that.
1: <laughs> what do you imagine this tastes like, Brad? I know you're the food guy here.
3: Uh, some kind of star Wars fruit. Star I Wars. I don't know any star Wars fruits. Maybe Brian, do you know any star Wars fruits?
2: So sitting on the table in front of Cyril's actually a melu run. <laughs> which is a Star Wars fruit. But yeah. I don't know you why know, you'd want like melu run cereal and then to eat in a Melu run. But, yeah. I don't, I don't I mean, think that's basically think- what Trix is, right? You're sitting there and you're like, oh, this is like oranges, but you've got an orange on your table. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. It was blue milk
1: though, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I like how there's like a, a cubby on the wall where like you just put a container and the blue milk just comes out. It just sits there. I'm, I'm not sure how that works. The, like, the, is there a, like, does that get refilled from outside the apartment building and, like, get piped into all the apartments? Or is it like my refrigerator where I put it inside? And, like, it didn't look like there was a door. I'm thinking too much into this. I'm sorry, guys. Okay. Um, uh, so uh, his mom call is going to call Uncle Harlow uh, to ask for a favor. We assume that's going to be to get a new job of some sorts and uh, we learn later that Uncle Harlow never believed that police work was Cyril's chosen path and that he needs some time to think about where he should be. Where do you guys think this is headed?
2: I, th- I think this is headed between a confrontation between Cyril and his mother because <laughs> Uncle Harlow is probably some well-placed... Well, actually, I think there's, there's two ways it can go. It can go Uncle Harlow is well-placed in the Imperial apparatus and either Cyril rejects the help of the Empire and the uncle to go after Cassian himself or he relents, goes to Harlow and realizes that Harlow's like the guy from the ISB, right? And uh, Or whatever. Some guy from the ISB. And then he gets involved in that and gets to use all those Imperial resources to go after Cassian. I definitely see
1: Dedra and Cyril's storylines colliding at some point right like it, it I, I don't think they're gonna stick on their own individual paths completely but we'll, we'll see uh so Cyril is not willing to give this up he stares at a holocron or sorry scan of Andor like later in the episode I'm putting this all together just so it, it's easier to get through uh why do you think he can't let this go?
2: Why, do you think, why like, do you why
1: think that, Cyril can't let it go? Yeah, do you think it, it, it's a revenge thing? Like, you know, this guy caused all this pain to him, or do you think it's it's like you know he real? What what does he have against Andor at this point in time?
2: So I think that there's a really interesting. um I think there's a really, really interesting dichotomy or like this contrast between the characters and what people lose and that theme of revenge about what they're willing to do against the people who've taken something from them. Right. When we see Skeen talking about what's been taken from him, either now with the tattoos or later in the episode with his brother uh, or Cassian and what he's got. And they're literally like dirt farming with these weird dre creatures ram sort of things like living in the filth because they believe in this cause and this revenge and like cyril gets wronged and instead of being sent to a camp and tortured he goes to his mom's house and she just sort of berates him and he's like i'm going to make them pay for this and it's this comment i feel like on um socioeconomic strata of like privilege right like these people have so much less to lose. And so costing them something is going to put them so much further into the dirt and people like Cyril, they're not falling that far when they, when they fail. And so I think, um, I really think that it's supposed to contrast like Skeen and Cyril and, and what they're motivated to do and how that loss is felt acutely by people across that strata.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it it definitely is because the the title of the episode is that whole line, The Axe Forgets, um, which I think is is played out in many ways throughout many different characters in this episode. Um, Yeah,
2: no. And I definitely think The Axe Forgets, like Cassian is Cyril's axe, and uh, I don't think he even remembers Cyril. I mean, they met once, right? Like, (laughs) he just doesn't even know. Okay. Meanwhile, at the
1: camp in Aldani uh, Skeen has gone through Andor's possessions. He's looking for something and uh, is able to read a lot about him and his situation through the the weapons that he uh, finds. And uh, Andor has noticed some of Skeen's tattoos, one of which uh, means crate head and the other by the hand. And I I know that we learned that these tattoos mean that he was in the Imperial Army of some kind, right? And but what what is Cratehead? What is by the hand? Do do we know anything about this?
3: Brian actually wrote a whole article about this for Slash Film and uh he found out um not much because this is all new stuff, but you can you can get an idea of what they're talking about in the conversation. So I'll let Brian take it.
2: Yeah, no. So crate head. I mean, obviously, we know that crate dragons exist and crate head um, sounds more like a place. It's it's capitalized like a proper noun um in the subtitles. We haven't seen anything about it before doing a zoom in on the tattoo. You see that like there's that symbol that looks sort of like a crescent moon inside of like a like a like a bolt or a nut. And uh, below that are the, word, the letters K and H in Arabesh. And then the rest of it is just uh, a number and a barcode. And with the way the conversation goes, I don't necessarily think it was Imperial Army. I think it's Imperial-like um, camps, right? Especially as they talk about how they built a lot of cages, Right. And Cassian talks about being stuck in one for three years when he was 13, that that youth center. Oh, is, do you think this is a callback to like the
1: Holocaust uh, with the, yeah. the numbers on the arm? That makes complete sense. OK, that makes a lot more sense. And
2: so when he says so when he says like, um, you know, Sipo Youth Center and Skeen says, yeah, they made a lot of cages. And then Cassian goes, so that's what you're here for. Revenge. It makes it it really implies and amps up. You've got to read into the idea that like these camps were horrible. These cages had the worst circumstances for these people and they were likely tortured in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I think I think there is that that straight Holocaust connection to it.
3: And I also I just love the idea too. like the the line is so simple, but like they made a lot of cages. It's like it just shows, you know, how ruthless the empire is and like the variety of people that they imprison no matter, you know, like uh, at various ages, you know, various backgrounds, all this stuff, you know, they're just oppressive, you know, across the board,
1: yeah. And he, and it's clear that he knew what the tattoo was, and I think uh, that tells Skeen something about Andor. And uh, obviously, you know, Andor, or uh, I guess, um, Clem, we should say, uh, Clem tells him a story about how, uh, he was in Sipo, the Sipo Youth Center, in and. In- that's not exactly the truth, right? Like that's a different name. I mean, the rest of it kind of lines up with what he, we learned earlier, but if we didn't hear SIPO Youth Center, right? No. So is, is that him? It was, him? Mimban.
2: It was yeah. Mimban that we heard about, but maybe the SIPO Youth Center is on Mimban or maybe, um, you know, things like that. Oh, I, I took it as, a, you might be right, but I took it as
1: uh, I've noticed Good liars it's not all a lie. Do you know what I mean They use yeah. mostly truth and then they lie about key little things so that you can't you can't see the lie in the thing because so much of it feels true because it is true or it's based on truth um so that's what I was taking it as, but you could be completely right, but I'm also wondering if and or you know in this as Clem. Would actually tell him where he was stationed if he was, you know, trying to s- still stand or cover. So I- I'm going to yeah. go with I think it's a lie.
2: Well, uh, I think I think most of it is the truth. But when yeah. he says, like, I've never heard of Sipo, um, maybe he just made up the new name. But because there's so many of those, it's believable enough to Skeen that like maybe he just didn't hear that one, hear of that
3: one. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how I took it too. That's that's what that line is. You know, they made a lot of cages now, you know, like that. There's so many. He just has he could not going to hear about all of them.
1: Yeah, and uh, Skeen is part of this organization to get revenge, and we'll learn more later in the episode. Uh, okay, so the basic gist of this whole sequence is that Skeen doesn't trust Clem, and that. Clem doesn't trust him or his teammates. And, uh, you know, it's if this group can't trust each other and work together as a team, how are they supposed to pull off this heist? And uh, Dan Gilroy is just so great uh, in the writing of this episode of building the tension that's going to lead to the next episode. Because, you know, this group does not seem like the cohesive team that they need to be to be able to pull this off um okay so we meet mon mothma's daughter lydia is that how you pronounce it lydia lida Lydia? um who seems to have sided with her father in this fractured marriage what do you guys make of this whole scene it, it, it's it's was kind of weird like she wanted to drive her but her father's gonna drive her it just felt like you know it's it's um my parents are getting divorced and it's a kid taking the other parent's side is that is that how you're reading as well
2: um what i the way i read it was that very much like um mon husband perrin is the fun parent and he's the fun guy and he doesn't care about any of this stuff and doesn't take it too seriously. And she's so devoted to helping people in the Senate, but also helping people in the rebellion that she's like largely ignored them. Like maybe her kid would like her if she would have paid more attention to her instead of the appearances that she has to keep to be able to live that double life. No, that, that, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense.
1: And uh, I'm just wondering where, where, where do you think this is going? That that that's good backstory for for her character, but I I don't know. I mean, I guess we're gonna eventually see that party over their house next episode, I assume, right?
2: Um, I think I think it kind of skipped past it. Oh, it did. Yeah, because like he said, they said I think he said that the they had the seating arrangement for dinner that night, and then they went to a different oh. party this episode.
1: Okay. Yeah. Right. Because I was um, w- wondering because they obviously wouldn't be taking a car home from their own home. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, and then um, like I I think where it's heading ultimately is the fact that we don't hear about these two people ever again in Mon Mothma's life. When she resigns from the Senate, escapes to the rebellion, she leaves these two people behind, and no matter how fraught the relationship between her and her daughter is that's going to be a sacrifice i hate to call it like sophie's choice but like it's up there yeah i do want to mention that lita is
1: portrayed by bronte carmichael who repeat it with me guys was an actress from game of thrones um, <laughs> she was also in uh christopher robin and raised by wolves uh Indoor drinks some Dre milk, and Dre milk is that, uh, you mentioned them earlier, they're like these multi-horned goat-like creatures on Aldani uh, that we saw in this episode and the last episode, and uh, apparently it makes you hallucinate if you drink too much of it, something like that
2: is... I thought it was just he I thought it was so bad that after three days of surviving on it, you would just question your existence.
1: Oh, OK. I, I, I misread that. line. Uh, but I will say congratulations, Star Wars. We
2: finally have a third color of milk after, you know, how many years of Star Wars,
1: 40 years of Star
2: Wars. So I wondered I wondered about the etymology of that word, like if they're just calling the animals drays uh, or like so like. I I had encountered this word recently, but like a Drayman was an occupation that we used to have here in the United States. And they were someone who would just like load uh, kegs of beer and like deliver beer on carts. Uh, and you could be a Drayman and that you were just a delivery of a deliverer of beer. And I wonder if there's some alcoholic element to that as well. Or that could have just been the inspiration
1: for the name coming out of that. Right. Because they yeah. hauled different things or something yeah, um, so Nemec, uh shows, and his first name is Karis. Karis Nemec, uh shows Andor the wonders of the old tech and uh, not being reliant on Imperial technology. And you can definitely feel the seeds of the rebellion here in this scene and what what's being said. Uh, what what? I mean, it's also it feels like a scene that. Uh, Andor's finally start, like it, I see the seeds of him being convinced to join this cause in, in what's being said and stuff. Uh, what, what did you make of this whole, this whole talk
2: for me? This, this sort of reminded me of sort of that, that uh, high and mighty notion of like what it must've been like with like Fidel and Che Guevara, like in the Hills, like talking about philosophy while working to overthrow a government you know what I mean like and and or certainly has um, or Cassian has certainly had those those elements sort of um those threads through it since the very beginning I mean Saw Gerrera is a play on Che Guevara you know it has those elements to it and I think this is really laying the groundwork for all the different reasons people sign up right like Nemec is signing up because it's an ideal Skeen is signing up because um, of revenge Cassian signing up for money at this point. So it's yeah. just, it it goes to show just all of the different motivations that are bringing these groups together and tying them together against the empire.
1: Yeah. And uh, Nemec wants Clem to read his manifesto that he has written. <laughs> and uh, I do want to mention that Nemec is played by Alex Lothar uh, who was in French dispatch, uh, the end of the FN world on Netflix And he starred in the So You Think You Can Dance episode of Black Mirror. So he's someone we've seen before and stuff. Uh, uh, Okay, so Clem is quizzed on how to know the weight of the freighter. And it's immediately clear that they aren't quizzing him. It's that they actually don't know. And this is... Shocking to Andor because they're about to do this mission less than 24 hours into the future, and they don't they didn't even know how to do this like one little piece of this plan. And if 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 any piece falls out of this plan, it, it, it's not gonna work. This is um, one of those
3: times where I wish Star Wars uh could swear more because I just I a picture of <laughs> just Cassian just being like, Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs>
1: One thing I, I did want to question you guys: when and when Clem gives the answer of how to do it, do you think that he actually knows how to read the weight, or do you think he's just making that up at that moment? I don't think you can make up that level of incredulity.
3: Yeah, yeah. He like yeah. that's those are mundane details, and like it's it's clear he he knows how to how to do that.
1: Yeah. Okay. So. So meanwhile, Imperial Lieutenant assigns Captain Tigo with turning a hotel on Ferrix uh, into a new headquarters of sorts, and I think this tells you a lot about Tigo because he asks if he can be a prefect, which uh, doesn't come with any actual more pay or responsibilities, um, and the lieutenant's like, "Yeah, I don't care what you do." Um, so I think that tells you with Tigo that uh you know, he cares more about his title than anything else.
2: There's something about the banality of that too that really reminds me of um World War II, right? Um where you had people just sort of the these these officers going into places and just kind of taking them over and like creating their own little fiefdoms out of it. But also like I've I've heard it said, and I don't know if this isn't necessarily true or not, but like the banality of that evil was that no one actually ever said, Hey, here's what we're going to do. And here's how awful we're going to be. They all just sort of like jumped on how awful they could be to impress their betters and to impress other people. And so like, this Imperial officer coming in and saying like, I'd like to be the prefect, um, you know, or the moths, or the Imperial governors or things like that. Like they're just giving themselves titles to Lord themselves over other people. And that's where you're going to get those camps. That's where you're going to get, people in places like Cratehead or the SIPO youth center is, is this, this, this banality of these just like totally mediocre average dudes going like, well, this is what I got to do to keep the peace because they've been given titles. They don't deserve because they can, they just, they can just take them. Yeah. And,
1: uh, we should say that Tigo is played by Wolf scolding who repeat it with me. Guys was in game of Thrones. <laughs> He's the brother of Amelia Clark's character, even though he didn't have a huge role um okay anyways uh the rebel squad has recreated the layout of the imperial base so that they're able to practice uh run throughs and uh Andor suggests this change in the position that shows how not only knowledgeable he is but observant he is of the group that he's fighting alongside. And uh, just then, a Tie Fighter comes out of nowhere, and the group has to cover their guns. And I was, a li- when I was first watching this, I was a little confused at what happened here. Uh, so, am I to assume that the Imperials know that there's people down there? They just think that they're like shepherds, or they're just like the local Aldani.
3: Yeah, yeah exactly and that's why he flies so close to the ground basically just to mess with their day and you know be like hey i see you assholes and like fly down there and like scare them
1: yeah because at first i was like why aren't they more worried that they know they're down there after that but like yeah then there's the uh the next scene where um where uh the lieutenant is with uh uh corporal kimsey and he's uh, yeah. wondering about uh, is the Empire planning to move the airbase to Aldani and uh, wonders how many locals they will have to worry about. Basically, you know, how many locals are we going to have to kill, uh, which I think is kind of uh, information you have there. Especially, actually, it's very good information considering what we learn later about uh, yeah. the yeah. lieutenant, right? Yeah
2: this scene works so much better. The second, like it works really well the first time, but when you watch it the second time and you know that this guy's like casual sort of racism against the locals is a direct turn of the screw into the Lieutenant because he'd fallen in love with the local girl and lost her and lost his taste for the empire. Like, watching him play this part is so much better when you know all that information.
3: And honestly, I think the performance actually is, is good. Uh, good enough. Um, the guy who plays Lieutenant Gorn, whose name I, I don't know. Um, Sue Uh his performance in that scene. Cause I, I, picked up on this the first time around is like, when he's talking about it, there's a look on his face. You can, that you can register that. that I thought that either he was part of like the Aldani himself or like he, he would, like, you know, at least knew, uh, somebody from them because there's, ju- there's just the, the a glint of like of melancholy on his face and even like anger mixed in with it when when he's listening to this guy say you know this this hateful stuff
1: yeah um i do think it does play better on the second viewing though it almost makes me wish that we learned that information earlier um because you know how many maniacs are like us and watch this multiple times probably a lot actually anyways um we cut to the ISB where Dedra is, she's onto something, uh, linking a bunch of the incidences uh, to what she believes is activity of a re- rebellion-like group. Uh, her, her superiors believe it's too spread out to be one group, but she knows better. And uh, there's a lot of name drops here, like names of planets we've we've heard of before. Brian, do you want to go through some of them?
2: Yeah, no. Um, so, and I think this is actually some of the stuff that gets really interesting for for possibilities for later. But she refers to Kessel, Fondor, Jakku, Base K, and Steargard as though this randomness can't just be random. Um, also, Kessel don't don't off- forget Hosnian Prime. Oh, Hosnian Prime is where it starts. So, Hosnian Prime is the capital of the. Um, capital of the republic the new republic at the time of force awakens and is the entire system destroyed by starkiller base and they don't quite know if anything's missing there because they're just dutifully like altering their reports to make it seem as though they're perfect um kessel has uh, a theft and i i wonder if this is actually a reference to solo Oh, I didn't even think about that. So we have them stealing all of that coaxium out of Kessel. And then if you remember on the way out, they run directly into the empire and confront the empire and lose them in the Maw. And so they don't know anything other than like, holy crap, a whole bunch of fuel is gone. And then it ends, ends up in the hands of Enfys Nest, who is a a rebel group. So I wonder if she's partially investigating that theft that happened in the past uh, at this point in the timeline as well.
1: Wait, wait, what timeline would that be, or what point of so, the timeline would that be?
2: So this is five years before uh, A New Hope, and so it's five years after Solo.
1: Yeah, that that would make sense. I think that would line up. I think you'd still be looking at things, like, five years back Yeah.
2: In this report. Um, And then Fondor is the the shipyards. And this is what I think is interesting. Uh, Fondor is the Imperial shipyards. You can play a mission to defend them in, or or attack them in the Battlefront 2 video game, the most recent Battlefront 2. And it's a really important shipyard in the Imperial fleet. But you'll notice that they're really leaning on the fact that Luthan drives a Fondor Hallcraft. And so them them both playing that up and him, especially with his scene at the end, worrying that he might get, um, he might get caught for something. And this is the only thing that can lead them to anything. Her investigating Fondor more closely and his ship being from Fondor actually looks like there's more that could be investigating him than, than reasonably he could have assumed.
1: The only Um, thing that doesn't fit here is Jakku. How does Jakku fit into this? Because we know that obviously the the last battle of, uh, the Empire's destruction or uh, them coming down. It happened in Jakku. But like what was happening 5 BBY or even you know, 10 BBY in Jakku?
2: So um, Jakku was being used by Palpatine in these years to build his contingency plan. And so all of the material that left to create the First Order in the Unknown Territories originated from Jakku. And the reason the final battle of Jakku was happening on Jakku was because all of the Imperials were um, amassing there because that's where Palpatine's last um, Palpatine's last contingencies were located, and they would need to be building them here. Ah, okay, that makes sense. Um, okay,
1: so it, it's the last night. They're going... Th- th- there's, like, no going back now. Uh, they toast the rebellion, which is, I think, the first time we've heard this word in... This show, it, it does it, in timeline wise. This is this the
2: first time we've heard the word rebellion? Um, probably right. Um, well, I want to say Enfys Nest probably makes some mention of it.
1: Wait, there, there was a rebellion at ten BBY.
2: Well, I mean that's what Enfys Nest was building. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess you're right. Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay, and- so. And Saw Gerrera had been building that even going far as back as Bad Batch, like in the wake of Order 66.
1: But I think Saw Gerrera used a different word, didn't he? Yeah, use, they, um... they
2: refer to themselves as the Partisans. Yeah. Um, and Champson and Dula and Ryloth is probably going through this stuff um, in a similar fashion as well. So, I mean, whatever word they use, there are these these pockets fomenting around everywhere. Yeah. I just think it's notable because
1: I think the show is
2: as much about Andor
1: as it is about the birth of this rebellion, so it's, it's it's interesting that this might be the first time that it's been used in this context and in canon, um, timeline-wise. Uh, okay, so Clem wants to know why Lieutenant Gorn is involved in this, and learns that he fell in love with a local woman, lost a the promotion, then lost his taste for the Empire, and uh, well, lost
3: lost the woman too.
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, Do you, do you think we're going to learn more about that story or do you think that's all we will be told?
3: If that's all we're told, that's really all we need to know. But if there's more that, you know, you know, fleshes out that, uh, you know, Lieutenant Gorn even more as a character, then that's, that's fine too.
1: Yeah. Uh, So Gorn's men are disappointed because the only good thing about being stationed in Aldani is the possibility of seeing that, that celestial event called the eye and uh, Gorn agrees to allow his men the night off from painting the gantry so they are able to partake in it. And I almost get the sense that like, uh, he seems defeated.
3: No, no, the opposite. No, I actually think that yeah. I think that because uh, he, there's a little smirk at the very end of the scene when he walks away, he got exactly what he wanted. He he doesn't want them there because that's when the heist is going to happen. And so, yeah,
1: that's that's why I was like, kind of confused. No, okay, that yeah, because
3: yeah, he he makes it seem like it's their idea so that it's not him sending people off so as not to rouse any suspicion as to why there's not anybody there when this heist takes place.
1: That's very smart. OK, so Skeen finds the Sky Kyber necklace that Clem has been hiding from the group and he is upset because something seems up. Uh, It leads to this big confrontation and Clem finally reveals that he's been paid to be there, uh, which is a big deal because everybody else is there fighting for the cause without getting paid. Um, And they, they hike the whole day to the garrison and make, Camp overnight signaling that they have arrived to Gorn. And instead of apologizing to Clem, Skeen tells him the personal story of his brother, a pepper tree farmer whose land was taken by the Imperials. And uh, he says he was killed, but it almost sounds like he killed himself.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He, did, he did kill himself, but the Empire drove him to it. Drove him to the,
1: yeah, to suicide. Um, so Val. Weaves and um how do you pronounce his name? Tara Terriman? Terriman. Terman <laughs> I'm bad with new Star Wars names, guys. Tarman is in is, is now in charge. So I guess the question is, where is Vel going? Because she says if, if all goes well, we'll see her tomorrow night.
3: There's there's some some part of the plan that they haven't heed both us into and Cassian into and so I'm sure we'll find out what that is whether it's because it goes wrong or whether it's because it's part of the plan that will succeed and we'll realize what it is when it actually happens but yeah there's there's something that we don't know yet
1: yeah and then we get this uh, weird scene with Mon Mothma uh, and her husband as they drive home from a party and it's clear that he doesn't know what his wife is up to because she doesn't want him to know what she's up to uh do, what do you guys think is he is he suspicious is he working against her
3: no i just know oh sorry go ahead brian
2: no you go ahead
3: yeah no i i just think it's the kind of thing where like it's since the beginning of the show it's that you you can't trust anybody and like not only is her relationship you know with her fa- uh, family on the rocks but like she she can't trust her husband e- even if she w- thought that she could just because it's it's so risky, you know. Not only would it put him at risk, uh, probably his, his life, but it would also put the rebellion at risk. And you just, you never know who's listening, who he might accidentally talk to, you know, all of that stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, and then we get a scene with Luthen. Finally, we're back at, uh, with Luthen. He's nervously uh, listening in on channels. He's wandering around his shop, uh, wondering if all is going to plan. Uh, and now it turns out that it it's weird to see him like this because he's been so confident thus far and what we've seen in, in the show but here he's like so nervous and he's worried like you know if that Val traces back to him but not just Val but also andor traces back to him so a lot personally and a lot for the cause is is you know sitting on what happens in the next episode. And uh, also in the scene, we we see some uh, some other artifacts in the background that Brad wanted to talk about.
3: Well, yeah, just one in particular. Um, uh, It's on the shelf next to where the Sith and Jedi holocrons are. Um, And if you look carefully, you will see uh, the stones from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom.
1: It looks like it's like only two of the stones, all right.
3: I think I think all three of them are there. I, I just think that you can't okay. see the, the the third one. I think it's just ob- obscured because of the the angle. So I, I would assume that all three of them are there. But uh, but yeah, those are definitely the uh, the Sankara stones from Temple of Doom.
1: Very cool. Um, and then we have the best line of the episode with um, who is the woman that he's with? Is that his assistant?
2: Yeah, I think I think she's in on everything too. I think they're they're. They're more equals than their relationship outwardly in the shop implies. Um, but yeah, I think she's at least appearing to be his assistant. Yeah, well,
1: I'm just going to refer to her as his assistant until we know otherwise. But his assistant says it'll all be over this time tomorrow. And he responds, or I'll just be starting. And uh, with that, we get the end of the episode. And I think that that was a great way to end it. Uh, Brian, did you have anything else to say about this episode before we get into speculation?
2: Nah, no, I just think the writing is super sharp and it's giving us so much stuff and like the visual storytelling is so good and it's so classic in how it's put together. It's like it really does feel like this new generation of 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 filmmakers and storytellers that grew up on 70s dramas who grew up on Orson Welles, right? Like I couldn't help but think about the storytelling around the table with with Charles Foster Kane and his wife, with Mon Mothma and her her family, right? How they're further down on the table with him than uh than her and they're sort of equals there. And she's sort of positioning herself at the head and they they scoff at that. Things like that. Like it's just got this really classic film style of storytelling and it has all the World War II elements to it. And the, I don't know, I just, I can't get over how sharp the writing is. I really like it. Brad, any last thoughts?
3: No, I'm, I'm right there uh, with, with Brian as well. This, uh, in particular, the writing in this episode of just like, it's, it's really good. And it really feels like that there's, um you know, there's nuance in Star Wars, which uh, I, I don't think happens very often, especially not, not in the movies. <laughs> um You know, the, the shows have been a little bit better about it because they've had some time to like, uh you know, let things sink in and to grow things in that way. But yeah, this is. Um, this is a, another level of Star Wars, I think, and it's. I, I do hope that people are tuning in, and that it's something that Lucasfilm sees as being successful. Because I hope that they see that this is something that will allow them to expand into, uh, you know, different kinds of, of genres, and it can it can be something that doesn't necessarily have the the exact spirit and style of the Star Wars movies, uh, which is I think one of the things. That they probably had problems tapping into when it comes to coming up with new Star Wars ideas because they're trying to fit it into this this box. When really it can be so much more if you do it right. And Andor, I think, is is great evidence of you know what you can do in the Star Wars universe without being uh, you know a, a slave to exactly what George Lucas made Star Wars to be.
1: Yeah, I think you guys said it best. Uh, let, let's get into speculation. Uh, next week is the heist. I, I think we we know that because it's it's the day of the heist and it's the end of this three episode arc. So I guess my biggest question we, we always assume in a heist movie or heist TV show that the heist is going to end up being successful. It might not go as planned, but it's going to end up being successful. Something I don't know, something about this does not feel like it might be entirely successful. I, I I'm thinking things might go less to plan than most heists. In, in cinema. What I, do you guys think?
3: I don't know about that because I think, I think in every heist movie something goes wrong or at the very least it, they make it look like something goes wrong but then it's like oh they anticipated this <laughs> and they and they fixed it but uh, every heist has something goes wrong and I think that you're definitely going to find something that goes wrong here. Like I said before, I don't yeah, think... Yeah something's
1: going to go wrong and then that's where Val is going to end up being and it turned out that like she was placed herself in the right scenario knowing that that was going to happen. <laughs>
3: But like I, I do think that, like I said before, I, I don't think everyone's gonna make it out of this uh, alive. I, you know, I, I think that we'll probably lose one, one or two of the, um, the heist crew. But, but yeah, I, I think something, something will go wrong. But I overall, it'll probably be successful. But at, you know, at, at the sacrifice of, of something else probably going wrong. Um, I mean, you know, we have a whole other season to come. Obviously, after this, and uh, several episodes in this season left. So you know, so, something's gotta gotta fill out that time.
1: Yeah. Um. I, I'm i not sure what else there is to actually speculate on. One thing I will say is there's the actress who plays Bix did an interview with Collider. And um, I guess possible spoilers if you don't want to hear what the actress said. Um, but she, uh, she revealed that uh, she's going to be in the second season. So we're gonna see more of Bix. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, uh, I mean not that, just this season because we saw some previews of her being like interrogated by Dedra, I think.
3: Yeah, I uh, suppose that's but, a spoiler if you were like wondering if she was gonna die or not. But yeah. she seemed like a pretty important character, so the fact that she's still alive made me think that okay, well, we'll see more of her at some point.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, I think you're right, Brian. I think a lot of these characters are gonna. It, it's gonna be as we go along. There we're going to see less new characters and they're all going to kind of cross paths in interesting uh, ways. But um yeah, I don't think I have anything else to speculate
2: about because everything kind of so far is heading to this heist. So, well, I think one of the things is something we touched on earlier though, is that Luthen's big thing is that he's worried that the empire is going to track him down and what he's doing, especially how, uh delicate that situation is especially with mon mothma and they're leaving us more and more breadcrumbs for exactly how these people are going to be driven to find him and make those connections because of cassian and because of how cassian was there and he's right to have worried about cassian because i think that might ultimately be his downfall right he's not there as one of the heroes. In the Rogue one right he 's not or not one of the the people making decisions in Rogue One as part of the the core leadership of the rebellion. maybe there's a reason for that, and maybe maybe his downfall is something Cassian's trying to make up for as well there's that line in Rogue One where Cassian says we've all had to do terrible things for the rebellion, and I wonder if Luthen has something to do with that hmm. well i can 't wait for next week's episode. I think next week 's episode
1: is is gearing up to be the best of the series so far, and uh, you know we'll we'll be back next week to talk about it. But until then, you can find more of all of our work at slashfilm.com. You can find Slashfilm Daily on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns speculation anything we missed let us know peter at slash film.com. and please rate and read this podcast an apple podcast tell your friends spread the word and we'll see you tomorrow this is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on that's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working the hvac is humming and his
3: facility shines